Welcome to the Epicenter Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Epicenter Church, visit epicenterchurch.com.au. All right, so we might start out with a bit of a game. Just because you've all eaten and you need to burn off some of that energy, but you won't have to move. So I've looked up a quiz, and it's a who said that quiz. So have we got any quiz masters here? No one heads to the pub and does trivia on a Tuesday or Thursday night. Oh, no one that's willing to admit it anyway. All right, so I'm going to read out some quotes and see if you can guess who said them. So the first one is this. It says, don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Oh, Leash, you're on the money, Dr. Seuss. (laughs) (laughs) Who said that? Aaron. Jeez. Sorry, Aaron. You were quick off the mark with that one. All right, this one. Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Come on. Someone should know this one. No. It was Oscar Wilde. There's a couple of groans there that knew that one. Impossible is a word to be found only in the Dictionary of Fools. I'll give you a hint. He was very short. There we go. Napoleon Bonaparte. That's right, Lyndon. All right. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. It's a great movie. No one. Malcolm X. Go watch the movie. You must be the change you wish to see in the world. There we go. No Winston Churchill, it was Gandhi. Simplicity is the key to brilliance. It's rumoured to have broken every bone in his body. No, Bruce Lee. All right, last one. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. Ricky. You said that, Ricky? I don't think so. All right, so that one was Steve Jobs. So we can go through and, and look and, and find numbers of, of great quotes made by people. But, you know, it seems like when people are faced with death, they tend to get a bit more honest and open up a bit more and they want to say something that will impact the people that they're speaking to. So I just want you to take a moment to think about it. If you were on your deathbed, you knew you were going to die, what would you say and who would you say it to? While you're thinking about that, I'm going to pray. Father, I just pray that you would just open up your word to us tonight, Lord that you would just speak into our hearts, that we would be mindful of, of words and things that are spoken, Lord God, particularly the words that you've spoken to us and that we would take them into our hearts and treasure them and value them. And I just pray tonight that you would just speak through me, 
and that you would impact the hearts of those that are here listening, Lord God. Amen. So the reason that I got you to think about that, and hopefully you didn't get too morbid, is the passage that I'm preaching on tonight is from John chapter 13 and 14. And so I've titled my message tonight, Famous Last Words. So the text is uh, based around Jesus' last meal with his disciples. So we find in John that we get a lot more detail about the events of this night as he sits down to supper with his disciples because we have the eyewitness account of John who was there. And John's purpose of his gospel was to highlight that Jesus was the Son of God. And so as we read through the text, we take this in mind and how does that impact the way that we read it, knowing that John is trying to highlight that he's the Son of God. And back in that day, for someone to make that claim was absolute blasphemy. For someone to claim that they were the Son of God was blasphemy a crime deserving of death. And in the end, that's what the Pharisees came for him with. They wanted to charge him with blasphemy because that's all they could hold on him. And so we find in this moment, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, not the great crowds of disciples that have been following him from town to town, but that small inner group, the ones that knew him best, that had been with him from the start. The ones that he held closest to him. And, and so there's this intimate setting as they're sitting around a meal together. And Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that the cross is about to happen. And so he begins to share some things with his disciples and so as I read through the text, it really just stood out to me that if that was me and I knew that I was about to die, what is it that I would want to say? I would think that what I had to say in those moments would be, would be quite profound. They would be something of great importance and something that I would be wanting to impart into my disciples. That would be crucial points for them to remember in the days to come. When Jesus is hung on the cross first and then buried in a tomb. See, because the Jews had the idea that the Messiah was going to come and rescue them from the Roman occupation. They weren't expecting someone to come and do all these amazing miracles and then die on a cross. And so we can read this text in, in hindsight, knowing what's happened, knowing the outcome. But in that moment, the disciples had totally other plans. You know, their idea was that Jesus would free them from the Romans. And how is he going to accomplish this if he's dead? So as we begin to read through the passage of John chapter 13. Jesus has finished washing the disciples' feet. He's announced his betrayal. 
and Judas has left. And he begins to speak to the remaining disciples. And he says this in chapter 13, verse 34. He says, A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. See, we look at this new command, and I've, I've spoken on it before, that we can compare it to the old, old covenant, to the Old Testament, where it talks about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. But then Jesus calls this a new command, And the reason for that is because he says, as I have loved you. So if we begin to look at how Jesus loved his disciples, we see shortly before he said this, he's committed one of the most humbling acts of that time where he's knelt down, stripped off his garments and began to wash the feet of his disciples. This is the one that they recognize as Lord. They recognize him as the Son of God, as the teacher in a place of authority and power. And yet here he is, kneeling down, washing their feet. And not just their feet. He washed the feet of the one that was about to betray him as well. You know, this is the kind of love that rather than throwing stones, it kneels down and writes in the dirt. This is the kind of love that meets the Samaritan woman at the well and doesn't judge her, but shows her another way. This is the kind of love that reaches out to the lepers, to the ones that are cast out of society. This is the kind of love that welcomes tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. It's the kind of love that walks past a tree and looks up and sees a man and says, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And reveals the father to this man who then encounters the love of God in such a way that it transforms his life. See, the kind of love that Jesus is calling for here is not the everyday run-of-the-mill kind of love that we come to know. It calls for a higher degree of love. You know, one that is illustrated in the life of Jesus. It's a higher degree of love that When the law says to love one another, to love your neighbor, the new one says not only that, but love your enemies as well. See, there was a day where Jesus was approached by a teacher of the law. So not just someone that knew about the law, that had read it and learnt it growing up, but a teacher of the law. So this guy knew it back to front because it was his role and responsibility to teach others about the law of Moses. So he came up and he said, how do I get to heaven? 
And Jesus' response is, you know, or sorry, he asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response to him was, you know, what do you think it is and how do you read it? And so the man replies, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. And then so Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And see, for some history, the Samaritans and the Jews were essentially enemies. They hated each other with a passion and still do today. And it goes right back in history, like hundreds of years before Christ. And so there's been this tension and and enmity between them for years and years. And so the significance of Jesus bringing up a Samaritan in his story is understood in the context of that day because they understood the relationship between the two groups of people. And so he tells this story about first there's there's this man who goes on a trip and as he's walking along he gets robbed and stripped naked and beaten and left on the side of the road for dead. The first person that walks past him is a priest. Excuse me, one of his very own people. You would think a priest would be compassionate and caring, but no, he crosses to the other side of the road. The second is a Levite, one of the people set apart of Israel for the royal priesthood, for the priesthood to serve in the temple and be a priest before God. Again, someone you think might have some compassion and some of God's love, towards this man, but no, they continue walking. And the one that stops is a Samaritan. And not only does he look after this man and dress his wounds, clean him up, he takes him to an inn, pays for all the expenses and says, if anything else, you know, if it costs you any more, I'll fix you up on the way back. So this man who was supposed to be an enemy was the one that demonstrated the love. And when Jesus asked this teacher of the law, who do you think was his neighbour? The teacher responded, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. There was that much disdain. So instead he says the one who showed him mercy And if we look at that word neighbour, it means this. It went. Here we go. So it's from the word plesion, and it means close by or near. So to love our neighbours means that we should be loving anyone in close proximity to us. So anyone in close proximity to us should be an object of concern, regardless of whether we share mutual ties with them, whether we share belief or nationality with them. 
So this is the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to when he says, love as I have loved you. With masses of people around him, daily he would reach out and love. And so when you're walking down the street, anyone that is in close proximity to you should be the object of your concern, should be someone that you are seeking to love. You know, Brant, on his last Sunday here, left this challenge for us. He'd been reading through uh, 1 Corinthians 13 for about a month to really begin to understand what love is and what love looks like. And we can look at, you know, in the prior chapter as well, in chapter 12, it talks about, you know, I could prophesy and, and sing with the voices of angels, but if I have not love, I am but a sounding gong. You know, the FBI, for their, um, their counterfeit department, when they train them, they train them to recognize fake notes and checks and things like that not by studying forgeries, but by studying the real thing. Because by coming, becoming so familiar with the real thing, they're able to identify what's not. And so we need to be doing the same thing. We need to be coming familiar with God's love. We need to become so familiar with it that we recognize when we're not living in it. When we recognize we're just giving out a counterfeit. You know, I love the brutal honesty of um, Peter McHugh. He's the pastor from Stairway Church. And while I was at Bible college last year, he shared part of his journey and part of it was you know he'd been pastoring this church down in Melbourne for about 10 to 15 years and he got to this point where he realized that he didn't know the love of God anymore if someone had come and asked him he wouldn't be able to answer it and so there was stuff beginning to creep into his life and and control him things like fear insecurities and so what he did was this. He went on a journey of pursuing God's love. And he said to the, um, you know, the eldership and the senior leadership at the time, he said, this is going to get messy. So you can either fire me now or walk through this journey with me because I don't want you firing me partway through while God's still dealing with me. And, and he shared that there were Sundays where he would be curled up in the fetal position on the bed because he was just so terrified. And they would ring and say, I'm sorry. They'd call the church and say, he's not going to make it today. Can you cover? And, and the fear and insecurity that he was carrying was absolutely crippling to him. But out of it, he recognised that if there's fear and insecurity, it means I need more of God's love. 
And we read in 1 John chapter 4, it says this, that perfect love drives out fear. So if there's fear in my life, if there's insecurity in my life, I need a greater revelation of God's love. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 35, after he said, as I've loved you, you should love one another. He then says, by, all, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So I want to ask the question tonight, how well are we doing at loving one another? Are we just keeping up appearances and... and you know, being nice and having that casual thing going, or do we genuinely love one another? If someone was to look from the outside, would they know that we're his disciples because they see the love that we have for one another? Challenging thought. Really challenging thought. So I want to encourage you, pursue the love of the Father. Become so familiar with it that you know, that you know, that you know God's love. We continue to read on as Jesus speaks to his disciples. And he says to them this in, in chap- verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, I'm going away and you will not be able to see me. But let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, and yet you do not see him. Now believe in me in the same way. So he encourages his disciples to believe. See, the thing about the language of the day was that it was a lot more colourful than our English language. And so it makes it even more important that we really study the text and understand what it's saying there. Um, you know, there's so many aspects to it. And my dad's living in Thailand at the moment and he um, was sharing with me about some of the words that he's learning over there in the language and it only takes a slight variation of a particular word in the Thai language and it changes the whole meaning. Whereas the English language, it's fairly straightforward and simple. Generally, you will know what I'm saying by the words and the tone of my voice. But for the ancient languages, we need to dig a bit deeper. And so I found this really fascinating. He says to them, you believe in God, now believe in me also. And those two times that he says to believe the first one the way that it's described is that it's present active indicative in the language and I don't want to lose you here so present self-explanatory active it's active indicative means that it's a fact and that fact regardless of whether it's true or not in when it's said like that It's an assumption of truth. 
So when Jesus is saying to the disciples, you believe in God, he's assuming that the fact is they believe in God. But then when he says, now believe in me, it's spoken in the present active imperative. And the imperative is a command. So he's commanding them, believe in me. And so if we look at that and and the context around that, you believe in God, yet you have not seen him. So all these years, the Jews have not actually seen God except for a couple. And yet they still believe. They have their stories of, of the things that he'd done in the past and, and the history there that was passed down from generation to generation, but they hadn't actually seen him, and yet they believed in him. And now Jesus has come, and they see him, and they see the works that he's doing, and some of them believe in him. Some of them believe that he is who he says he is. But then he commands them to believe the same way that they believe in the Father because he's about to go. He's about to die on a cross, get buried in a grave, raise again, and go to be with the Father. And so Jesus has walked around live in the flesh with them and done ministry for the last three years with them, performed miracle after miracle, loved them, served them, taught them, is now about to go. And so he commands them, believe in me because I'm not going to be around much longer. And we fast forward 2,000 years and here we are in a similar position where we believe because we have the stories, we've seen the works of the Father, but we haven't yet seen him face to face. And so that command stands today for us to believe. He goes on to say that whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing and they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Whoever believes in me will do what I've been doing. They've seen Jesus. They've seen the works that he's done. And now it's their turn to go and do also because they believe in him. Because they've known the Father's love they begin to work out of that love and do the things that Jesus did. See, the word comes, the word believe comes from the Greek pastuo, to believe, have faith in, to trust. Now, trust is a dangerous word. 
That's a scary word because it requires something of us that often when we're not prepared to give because there's a risk attached to that. When we begin to trust, we begin to give people power over us because we're placing our trust in them. And it opens us up to to being hurt. It opens us up to people using us. But it also opens us up to experience the love of God. It opens us up to experience the works of God. It opens us up to experience the Father himself. I read a book a few years back called Ruthless Trust. It was written by an ex-monk, Brennan Manning. And pretty much the book is summed up in the title, Ruthless Trust. You could almost call it brutal trust because he speaks of a level of trust that you know, I'd never been game enough to imagine. You know, I'd been so fearful to even dare to trust like an, an ounce of the amount that it was calling for in this book. And, and it was just terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Because all of a sudden, I'm not in control. All of a sudden, I'm relying on someone else to come through for me. It puts me in a position of of vulnerability. But it's in that place of vulnerability that we encounter God. And so I want to encourage you, how much do I really believe in God? And when I say believe, I'm not talking about just an idealistic belief. You know, that sounds really nice. I'll I'll believe in that. I'm talking about the kind of belief that goes against our heads at times uh, because of the level of trust that it demands. You know, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The kind of trust that still can be in the position where the body is suffering and you're crying out to God, waiting for deliverance. The kind of trust that can be in that moment that's still able to surrender and say, no matter what happens, I still believe. The kind of trust that leads our Saviour and our Lord to be brutally 
beaten and punished and hung on a cross to die. The kind of trust that knows the Father's heart and is willing to follow it to the end. This is the kind of trust and belief that Jesus was trying to instill into his disciples in this moment because at the present he was there with them but soon he would be there no longer. He goes on to reassure them with this statement. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, right now they're sitting pretty. They're walking around with one of the most popular people in the day. Crowds are flocking in. Things are happening. Miracles are happening. People are getting healed, set free, delivered. But there's a time coming where all that ends, where they get persecuted, where they get stoned, where they get hung on a cross to die, where they get beheaded, where they get chased out of town by family and friends, where they get rejected. where they get forced to renounce their beliefs so that they can live. And so I think that's why in this moment Jesus encourages them with the reminder, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, it may have been tempting under all that persecution to go back and be like, you know, it'll be okay. We'll get there in the end. But he reminds them he is the way to the Father. They've seen him. They've seen the Father. They know Jesus. They know the Father. So nothing else will do. And it's very easy in this day and age with different ideas coming out, different religions, universalism, you know, they're all the same God, pick your own path, all that kind of thing. And it's very easy to get caught up in some of that because it sounds good. Some of it genuinely sounds good. But Jesus is quite clear there that he's the way to the Father. And so when, when we're faced with persecution or hardship, we remember that he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. He continues to speak to them. 
and, and begins to speak about the Holy Spirit and share about what's to come and continues to encourage them. And the final thing in this conversation is he offers them a gift. We see in verse 27 he says this to them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He gives them the gift of peace. Not just any peace, but his peace. The peace that was able to stand in front of a crowd of false witnesses, be wrongfully accused and beaten, hung on a cross to die and not retaliate. That was his parting gift. That kind of peace. The word peace comes from the word, it looks like Irene, but it's probably not how you pronounce it. And it means tranquility, repose, calm, harmony, accord, a state of untroubled, undisturbed well-being. Who would love to have a state of untroubled or undisturbed well-being? That sounds pretty dang good. So such a state of peace is the object of divine promise and is brought about by God's mercy, granting deliverance and freedom from all the distresses that are experienced as a result of sin or separation. This state of peace is the result of being reconciled to the Father. It's the peace that comes with knowing that I have been set right with God. And it's no coincidence that Jesus gives them this gift right after he's spoken to them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace. Peace is the person of the Holy Spirit. There's a passage in Philippians chapter 4 that I've read time and time again. And it's probably my favourite passage on peace. And it says this. Let's look it up. Sorry. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer 
and thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious about anything. There was a lot of times while I was at Teen Challenge that I would feel myself being overcome with anxiety, you know, to be thinking about my wife, my son, wanting to get out of there, what was going on in life in general. And time and time again I'd go back to this verse and speak those words, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer with thanksgiving make your request known to God and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, this is the kind of peace that doesn't make sense. It's the kind of peace that when the whole world is falling apart around you, you're able to stay in that place of, you know, that place of untroubled, undisturbed well-being that place of tranquility because you know the person of the Holy Spirit. You know the spirit of peace. And there'll be times where your head and your heart are telling you one thing, but his his peace overcomes it. His peace overwhelms those feelings that you have inside where you're just getting all churned up with no idea how the situation is going to work out. But you got this peace and there's no explaining it. There's no sense to it, but you have this peace because in the end you know Everything's going to be all right because there's a trust and a belief that my father is good and that he has my highest good in mind, no matter what that looks like. It may look very different to the situation that I imagine, but he's got my good in mind. I just want to finish it with a few questions. You know, what can you take away from these famous last words, these words of encouragement? You know, is the Father wanting to show you more of his love? You know, is there some fear there? that needs to be overwhelmed by the love of God? Is it something you just need for to be overflowing out of your life so you can begin to pour that love into others? 
so that people can see by looking at you and know that you are his disciple, that you are a son and daughter of God. Are there areas of your life where you need to stretch your belief and your trust in God? I'm sure that if we all really wanted to think about it, we could come up with something where we just don't trust him enough. And so remember those words. Believe in me. That command to believe in Christ. Have you met the person that is salvation in Jesus Christ? You know, if you've never met him, you know, when we're finished here, I'd love the opportunity to pray with you and introduce you to him. Or do you need more peace in your life? Do you find yourself getting unsettled at circumstances and just really need more of the spirit of peace in your life? Do you need to reconnect and re-engage with the Holy Spirit and let his peace just overwhelm you? I want to leave it at that. And I want to use the Jewish greeting, Shalom. It means peace be with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe to hear more sermons from Epicenter Church. 